Hallelujah, hallelujah, let my life song sing to you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, let my life song sing to you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, let my life song sing to you. In case you do have a wedding dress lying around, ladies, that you don't know what to do with and you don't want to turn into doilies, I always need props. So feel free to pass it on to me if you're not going to, uh, they're just going to take up storage space in your houses. Let's go to prayer and then we're going to enter the text. God, as we talk about the old and we talk about the new life we have in you available to us. Wake us up, uh, slap us with silence, slap us with pain, but wake us up so that we can hear you, experience you, and walk out of here more in line with your will and your way. Bless our time together in your precious name. Amen. I'm reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 18. We'll have it come up on the screen, but you can also follow along in your notes, in your Bibles, on your phones. Unless you don't have a smartphone, and good luck with that. All right, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were feasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. 
And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And we're going to unpack this today. And some of you just heard this, and it just went over your head. Because this is like a head-scratching moment. Why should you listen to God's word today? Like, should all the time, but why today? Because God, bottom line, wants you to tell the truth. How many of you tell the truth? If you put your hands up, I already got you. So, <laughs> I, but I do have a theory about why Canadians don't tell the truth. Would you like to see it? Three people, great. Roll it. We all know adults stink at talking about tough things, but how about little kids? Here's my experiment. Feed kids wretched brownies, then see if they'll tell you the truth, especially when they think it might hurt your feelings. First I made the brownies. Lots of chocolate, eggs and flour, but instead of sugar, I put in salt. Lots of salt. There's no way they could like these better. Now I recruit kids of various ages for a taste test. I tell them I want to compare ordinary brownies to my special brownies. My dear grandmother's special recipe. My dear dead grandmother's special recipe. Then I give them a dollar for being such a big help. My parents always taught me that if you want someone to like you, give them money. Okay, here goes. First they ate the yummy sugar brownies. Next, they eat the salt bricks. Watch this girl. She can hardly keep from gagging. And now for the crucial moment. Will they tell me the truth and possibly offend me? I asked them to point to the brownies they like best. No surprise that some tried to spare my feelings. But watch. Even the one who gagged? And how about really little kids? But do you want to know what they really thought? Here, guys, I have leftovers. Does anybody want seconds? At a young age, we all start believing a myth. If we tell the truth, we will lose a friend. If we tell the truth, we'll lose a relationship. And you can measure the effectiveness of a, of a marriage, of a relationship, of a team, of an organization by the amount of untalkables in it. You can walk, I can walk into board meetings and, and, and team meetings and sometimes you can tell there's this elephant in the room. There's like 
what on earth is it, are they holding back from talking about? And that's what we've been talking about over these last couple of weeks. We've been talking about crucial conversations. And see, the brilliance of Jesus, and you see it, we saw it this week, last week, you see it all the time in the Gospels, is with Jesus, there are no untalkables. With Jesus, there is no disingenuousness. He's just, he speaks the truth. And like we've been chatting about these last couple weeks, are there a few moments in your life that matter more than the rest? Are there a few moments where how you be behave or how someone else behaves has the enormous effect on you moving forward? And if you don't know the answer to that, the answer is yes. There really are. And we all know this. Like, we all know this. But when the stakes are high, when there's differing opinions, and when there's strong emotions— for many of us, it's like we talked about last week, what happens? Our Canadian politeness disorder kicks in. Or, or it's like someone could be doing something so painful and so abusive to you, but you're like, I gotta be gracious because that's what Jesus would do. He'd be a doormat. Or, or, or we're, we're just like, I, I don't want to cause drama and you're terrified of drama or you're terrified of losing a friend or a relationship, so you just clam up, keep quiet. And it's often when these crucial moments come, we do our worst, even when we do respond. And so a lot of us have arrived at a conclusion. And the conclusion is this. Is change even possible? Or I think the most popular expression I've heard over the last five, six years is this one. Change is impossible, so therefore it is what it is is. Now, last year I talked about words I want to eliminate from Richview's vocabulary. Do you remember that? If there's a statement I want to remove from Richview's vocabulary, it's that one. It is what it is. What an awful statement. What a terrible statement. What a thing. That's what defeatist People with defeatist attitudes say it is what it is. I can't change it. It is what it is. We need to eliminate that statement because that's what indifferent people say. Do you know what indifference is? Indifference is the opposite of faith. If we believe there's a God, if we believe there's a Jesus who came down to forgive us our sins, to give us a relationship with God, to transform our lives, then it is what it is, should not exist in our vocabulary because we know there's a God who can change and transform lives. Can I get a little bit of an amen? amen. So we need to unpack the story in Mark 2. And Jesus is confronted again like he was last week and the week before. You're going to notice Jesus gets confronted a lot. And, and all these things come together here where it's high stakes, differing opinions, and, and strong emotions. And I notice here, he could have softened the blow. These Pharisees, these religious leaders come to him. I think he could have softened the blow here, but instead he tells the truth. And he does not make friends by telling the truth here, as you see right then and there, but by speaking the truth. It sets them on course for turning the world upside down. 
And I would suggest and I would argue that I think there's moments in our lives where we get stuck spinning our tires and we get stuck missing out on real transformation of our world because we won't speak the truth. And so Jesus is here and they're talking about the topic of fasting. Fasting. When a couple weeks Lent happens, are you familiar with Lent? I know some of us are Baptist here, so that might seem like a curse word, but Lent is a time especially in mainline churches, where for 40 days before Easter, the community will take fast from something. It could be from food, it could be from uh, media, it could be from donuts, whatever. But they take a break from stuff, so to devote those 40 days to focus more on Christ and what he did on Easter Sunday and a way of saying I'm sacrificing something for you, God, so I can be more focused on you. So what, I, what I'd like to do today, and in a couple weeks we're actually going to do something like this. On March 1st is when uh, Lent starts, and I'd encourage you on that Ash Wednesday on March 1st to be thinking, hey, maybe I could for 40 days. Maybe there's something I need to give up. Maybe I need to give up maybe one of the things I mentioned but maybe taking a break so I can focus more on Christ. But I just wanted to take just a few minutes today and talk about five simple questions about fasting in this story today. So the first one's this. What is fasting? And fasting is, bottom line, fasting from the Bible is giving up food. Just only having water. That's biblical fasting. That's the picture we get in from scriptures. People have different definitions of it in today's society, but at bottom line, that's what fasting is, except in in Exodus chapter 34, we see Moses the prophet for 40 days giving up food and water. I don't recommend that. (laughs) But we live in a culture today where we have... um, Uh, people who are gluten-free. That seems to be all the rage amongst hipster generation. And we have also fasting is actually becoming a big thing now in the fitness community because you're seeing the benefits of purging purging things from your body. I want to encourage you, if you're going to do a fast, and a biblical fast, even if you just went down a grape uh, juice, that's fantastic. But if you go to a biblical fast of just doing water, just some practical things I'd encourage you about. First of all, if you're like me, you've got probably a Canadian diet. And part of that means you drink coffee. So if you ever go to a fast, for those of you who have ever done a fast past three days, you'll notice something in those first three days, headaches. And what's going on in your body is by taking food out, your body is now, because you're drinking all this water, it's expelling all the toxins and, and the food color, the colors and everything out of you. And I don't know if you've been in this situation before, I find the first three days of a fast the worst. Because I'm drinking water like crazy to keep and stave off the headaches. And it's like, I thought the purpose of a fast was so I could set aside food to focus on God. I find I may, that all that time that I devote it to, and I don't have to prepare food, I'm in the bathroom. And I find if you're going to do a, a fast of that magnitude, I encourage you, once you get to about day four, you kind of hit into that cruise control state. So just keep that in mind from a very practical standpoint. If you're like me, if you have a good, healthy diet, a very un-Canadian diet, that transition's usually a little bit easier. Uh, second one here, who fasted? can read about this in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were certain fasts that were commanded 
around certain festivals. But people, generally speaking, in the Old Testament thousands of years ago would fast if they were mourning. They would fast if they um, were preparing for something or wanted God to do something or if they were protesting. Then we come to the New Testament, and in this story here, you got these Pharisees, these religious leaders. These guys are, these guys are disciplined. And you read about it, I think, in Luke, 8, Luke 18. They would fast two days a week. They would always fast on Mondays, and they'd fast on Thursdays. They were very devoted. Not only did they obey the Old Testament laws, they added a whole bunch more onto it to make themselves, I don't know, think better, look better. I guess you'll see so in a second. Then we read about a guy named John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin. And he's a bit eccentric, but both he and his disciples fasted. And then we come to Jesus. And just like I mentioned earlier, Jesus fasted during his 40 days in the wilderness. He also tells his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 6 to fast. And then we read a little bit later on after the church's birth that they fasted. We read about, read about that in the book of Acts. So we got a picture of what fasting is and who fasted. And then we come to this third thing, who didn't fast. And so we come to this story today. And Jesus and his disciples, they're not only not fasting, what are they doing? They're feasting. They're having a party. They're, 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 they're living it up. They're having a good time. Hey, let's make a ton of changes. How many of you like change? Next week, we're going to bring in a Christian death metal band to lead us. All right? And for all of you, don't show up here. Go to the local Tim Hortons and watch the service online. All right? So we'll have the, the death metal band here, and then I'm going to broadcast from my bathtub. Now, you can see that would create anxiety for some people. Would you agree? And some of you are just disturbed thinking about that visual picture right now, aren't you? This is what the Pharisees are going through. Jesus is just like flipped the whole card on them. He's turning everything upside down. Change is never something people like. I mean, these guys are zealous, passionate, lovers of God's word, and, and passionate followers of Jesus do what? They fast. They don't feast. So you can understand a little bit of their anxiety with all these changes going on. I mean, just the other day, we talked about it last week, Jesus is feasting with who? Sinners and tax collectors. It's like, that'd be like you or I, maybe in today's society, feasting with uh, child molesters and tax evaders. And, and, and they're like, first of all, it's one thing that you're feasting, and then you're feasting with those despicable People, I mean, this is really rattling the religious leaders' uh, cages. I mean, a, a rabbi shouldn't be doing this. A righteous man should not be doing that. And you should definitely not be feasting with people like that. So Jesus and his disciples, they're doing something new. And it's different. And the people are talking about it. And, and, and it's like they're full of joy and they're partying and they're feasting and... and, and the poor Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't know what's going on. They think it's disturbing and scandalous and, and dangerous and wrong. So all of a sudden, and we talked about this last week and the week before, when you've got high stakes, 
differing opinions and strong emotions, what do you got? You've got a crucial confrontation. And then things blow up. The religious leaders come to him and they ask him a question. And if you remember from last week, what have we now just entered? The hazardous half minute. Do you remember this? No, that's fine. Go back next, last week and watch the sermon again because you already forgot. Brain's leak, that's fine. Um, you got 30 seconds. Do you remember this? From when, you, when a crucial conversation happens, those three things come together, you've got 30 seconds to respond appropriately or not. And in those 30 seconds, what do you have to try to accomplish? Because if you respond correctly, you got a 97% chance of being heard. That's pretty good stats, isn't it? That's from 10,000 plus hours of observational research. 97% chance of being heard if you respond well in that 30 seconds. What do you have to do in those 30 seconds? Do you remember? You have to create a culture of safety. That other person needs to understand that you, you believe in them, that, that you care for them. And if you can do that, they're going to hear you. They're going to completely hear you. So the unfortunate thing, I think, for a lot of us is we read this story of Jesus, and it's written back in the first century, so we have a tough time appreciating and finding the application in the 21st century. So I brought an example to show you today. Let's roll that. One of them was a life-threatening situation in an airport in Bangladesh. I'd spent a couple of weeks there on an assignment, and I was exhausted, road-weary, anxious to get back home. And I got to the airport in Dhaka an hour and a half early. I was feeling very, very responsible. And as I walked into the airport, feeling responsible, feeling confident about my prospects for getting home and everything, I noticed the airport was just jam-packed with people. You ever had that happen? Just a, just a mess, a, a giant mass of humanity. And I started looking around a little bit more panicked, and I found my carrier, and, and there were only two people doing check-ins, and the line was snaking out the door, and, and I thought, oh my goodness, but I got to the end of the line and, and started dragging my bag forward a little bit at a time and trying to hurry the process along, and since I had nothing else to do, I thought I would start a time and motion study. So I started calculating every five minutes how many people moved, counting the people in line, dividing it by the minutes left, and, and after about an hour in the line, my spirits started to lift. I started thinking, eh, I may actually make it. I may actually get there. Well, as I was feeling a little bit more confident, a woman comes into the airport pushing a big, giant, disorganized cart covered with luggage and shoves her way in line just a few people up in front of me. Looked at her and kind of thought, oh, that's, that's kind of annoying. And She's probably going to take a lot of extra time because she's got to reorganize all of her junk there. And I was feeling a little resentful about this when the guy that she cut in line right in front of just explodes. He just goes ballistic. He screams at the back of her head, get out of line! She turns and looks at him and she says, no, I'm not going to get out of line. And now he says, you get out of line right now! She says, look. I've got to make my flight. My children are going to be waiting for me in San Francisco. There's not another flight I could get on for another three days. Please just cut me some slack and let me stay here in line. To which he said, if you want to get in line, you get in line like the rest of us. You go back to the end of the line. She said, I am not getting out of line and turned back around. Now he yells again at the back of her head, you get out of line or I'm pushing you out of line. Now she turns, looks him full in the face and says, you will not. He steps out of line, 
and he starts to push her luggage cart out of the way. So she goes to the other side of the luggage cart and starts to push it back in. He starts to push, she starts to push, and pretty soon it's getting pretty energetic, and I'm standing back here watching this whole thing escalate, thinking, oh my goodness, when all of a sudden, he pulls his leg out of the way, so her luggage cart slides down. She starts to trip downward. He lifts his hand up and starts to swing it down to slap her on the way down onto the ground. Now again, I'm just a few feet away from this commotion, and I looked at my watch, and I thought to myself, I got nothing better to do. I think I'll get involved. <laughs> it actually wasn't a conscious process. It was just sort of a reflex. I rushed forward and positioned myself right between him and her. Is this a good idea? <laughs> this is not a good idea, but I didn't know what else to do, and I didn't want her to get hit. And, and so I'm standing here, and this man at first is sort of caught off guard. He steps back a couple of steps, and he looks a little bit confused, and I thought I had the element of surprise going for me, but he very quickly recovered. He lifts up both his hands. His eyes bug out of his head. His face turns purple. Is this a crucial confrontation? So I'm standing here, and his fists are up, and his eyes are bugging out of his head, and his face is turning purple. And the first thing I said to him was, that was unfair for her to cut in line in front of me. He looked a little confused. I said, you've been standing here in line for over an hour, and she comes and cuts in line. It puts your flight at risk. I said, that's unfair. His hands dropped down. I said, she cut in line in front of me too, and that's not working for me either. His face turns back to a normal color. I said, I could get somebody from the airport over here. We can try to figure out how to solve the problem. I think we can make this work. His eyes go back into his head. Oh, what just happened? Yeah. Now, did I take him off the hook for his misbehavior? No, I didn't. I'm about to put him on the hook but I can't put him on the hook until he can hear me. I can't hold him accountable for what he's done until he feels safe enough to hear me describe what he's done that isn't working. Does that make sense? That makes sense? So now he can hear me. And that's when I said, and this was life-changing for me, that's when I said, and sir, I can't go ask for help until I have your word that you're not going to hit her. You had your hand up, you were swinging down on her, and I said, and that's just wrong. You don't get to do that. Now, I don't know that the way I said that was the right way to say that, but what I want you to hear was his response. He went like this. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry. It's, it's been an awful week. He said, it's just been horrible. I've got to get home. He said, this is not me. He said, and then he didn't even want to look at me. He tried to look past me to this woman over here, and he says, ma'am, please forgive me. He said, I wouldn't have done anything. He said, I just, I just this is not me. Helpful? Yeah. Today in the grocery store, may the Lord bless you. <laughs> See, sometimes other people cause crucial confrontations, and sometimes you're the cause of the crucial conf confrontation. No matter what side you are on, it's your decision what happens in that next 30 seconds. Jesus here, he's shocking in his reorientation of religion, what he's doing, and he's created this moment, this, this powder keg. So, so why are there differences? Why does this even become a crucial confrontation between him and the religious leaders? Why the differences? Why are they fasting, and why is he 
feasting. What on earth is going on? And Jesus uses two metaphors. And I think he used those two metaphors because every time Jesus uses a metaphor, I actually think he's actually literally pointing at something. So he's in a room that's got a party's going on. So what's there going to be a lot of? Wine and wineskins. So in case, give you a little first century wineskinning here. Um, we use phrases like, I'm going over to so-and-so's house who's hosting a kegger. Are you familiar with that word, kegger? Okay, like a big container of beer, all right? And sometimes you'll see guys, like college students carrying the kegger to go to a party. Well, they stole that idea from the ancient people. And this is how an ancient kegger went. I kid you not, except the sheep's dead and filled with wine. But what an ingenious way to go to the kegger. And so what you would do is they used everything on the sheep back then, but they'd kill the sheep, empty the sheep, cap off the ends, and you'd carry it, probably take the fur off too, and you got this kegger that you can carry with you to the party. And this place was probably, probably had a couple of them in there. So next time you're throwing a kegger, take a sheep with you. But that's, so he starts talking about wineskins, he starts talking about cloth, and you're like, what on earth is he talking about? What on earth is this keg thing? And it's not that, and here's such an important thing, it's not that Jesus was saying, out with the old, in with the new. That's not what he's saying at all. And if we miss this, we miss the whole point because it's so much more than that. It's, he's like, the old will not work with this new movement, this special time, the specialness of this time. See, fasting is like taking a, ple- a piece of cloth that's not trunk and putting it on an old garment when you throw it in the dryer what happens since that piece that patch is not shrunk yet it's actually gonna shrink and that big hole you had will just get bigger or and, and jesus is like you don't take an old wine skin that's probably already had wine in it and fill it up with new wine because what's going to happen it's going to swell and burst and you lose all that wine. You take new wine and you put it in a new wineskin. And so he's using these pictures which they all would have known. And, and, he's, and he's like, this is a special time. This is a special period. Maybe this will help. How many of you have been to a wedding? Okay. Now, how many of you have been to a non-Baptist wedding? Okay, so I find usually we got to differentiate here because no Baptist would ever do this in their right mind. But imagine if there's alcohol at the wedding. Okay, just imagine with me. <laughs> um, why am I laughing? We have to differ. There's alcohol at the wedding, okay? And some people barge into the wedding, well meaning Baptist. You can't have wine or alcohol at the wedding. What do you think? Throw them out? (laughs) If that was the attitude, what are we doing at the wedding? 
We're feasting. We're celebrating. We're celebrating the bride and the groom. We're celebrating their love, their commitment. It's not a time for fasting, because fasting's for what purpose? Funerals, grief, mourning? And this is the point Jesus is trying to get across here in this picture is, by the way, who's the groom? Jesus is. And he goes, I'm here for this special time. It's a time of celebration, not a time of fasting, not a time of old wineskins, but new, but new. And he goes, if you take these old practices and you put them in this moment right now, it's not going to work. This time is different. It's not that we don't need the old practices, but this was a joyful time. This was a joyful period. And as long as he's here right now, we should be celebrating, not fasting and mourning. I mean, these, these weddings and the imagery he's using of a wedding celebration, these could go on for weeks. Imagine if you showed up at a wedding festival for weeks and you're fasting the whole time. You'd be a real killjoy there. New wine and old wineskins, that doesn't work either. And this is important because I think we're moving into an era where people are rediscovering spiritual disciplines and fasting is actually becoming a rage in our culture. There is nothing virtuous about fasting. Nothing. Nothing virtuous about fasting. Nothing magical about fasting. In fact, Jeremiah writes this. It's not even always appropriate. It says this. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. And God's like, you can fast all you want. You can look good in front of all your religious friends. But I know your heart. I know your heart. I see your words. I see your attitudes. Just because you go to church does not mean you're not a jerk. Just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. And it's so dangerous to become tethered to religious institutions, sorry, not religious forms. And any religious form becomes inappropriate when it misses the point. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Peter Rawlings, and he tells this story. There was once a wise teacher who would go to temple each evening for prayer and invite his disciples along. And there was always this annoying cat in the neighborhood who would come in at nights and just cause a ruckus. So every night, this wise teacher would tether this cat and tie it to a tree. And that way they could continue on in peace during the, the prayer meeting. And he would do this night after night so they wouldn't have to listen to this cat making and disturbing the peace. Well, the teacher got old and he passed away. But his disciples continued to take the cat each night before the evening prayer service and tether it to the tree. Well, eventually the cat died. So the disciples went and bought another cat. And they continued each night before the prayer service to tether it to the tree. A century went by. And the tree died. 
So they right away planted a new one so that they could continue to tether the cat to the tree. That cat, by the way, by then was an eighth-generation cat. And over the centuries, learned scholars would come around the world to write books on the symbolic meaning of this very act. And Jesus is like, you can do these religious forms and completely miss the point. Isaiah 58 says this, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and then tie the cords of the of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood see even this time on sunday mornings this is not your religion if it is if this is all it is for you you're going to hell This is not your religion. Your religion is what you do the rest of the week. This is a time where we come together corporately to talk, to pray, to fellowship, to encourage, to exhort one another, to pray together, to help one another. But our religion is the lives of our daily service to them. We have so little time together here on a Sunday morning to to encourage, to exhort, to to pray for one another, but the forms here are not the point. And if you just focus on the forms, you miss the whole point. If you choose a church based on the style of music uh, it plays, if you choose a church based on the type of coffee that it has, if you choose a church on whether the teacher lowers people from the ceiling or not, if you choose a church on anything other than the ex- on anything external apart from the word of God and the witness of the lives of the people, you're not choosing it for the right reasons. And you're going to get a bad guide that's going to serve you for the rest of your lives. I mean, imagine if you're a Blue Jays manager or, or sorry, a Maple Leafs coach. You're all listening now. He's talking about the precious leaves again. I must pay attention. And imagine if you were consumed with the condition of the locker room, but not with what happened out on the rink or on the field. We got to get those chairs stacked up right. I mean, look, there's garbage in the garbage can. It's got to be emptied. But you paid no attention to what happened on the rink or the field. How many of you think that male or female coach manager would be a good coach or manager? No, of course not. I mean, I mean, and, and the picture there is the rink, the stadium, the field. That's the rest of your week. That's where you're going in just a few minutes. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Yes, here, but the rest of the week, the rest of the week, the purpose of this is for that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And we can get anxious, especially if we've never known another way, when it comes to this kind of conversation, when we move from doing things that we can do to a religion of God where God has done it for us in Christ. And we like to think that there's things that if we do them for God, then somehow God owes us a debt. 
But we find out from Jesus here is that he's out of our control. And the most amazing thing about this passage is who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. John the Baptist's cousin had clearly seen that. We've been looking at this the last few weeks. Demons obey him. Jesus forgives sins. He's Lord of the Sabbath, which is basically another way of saying was he, he was a witness of God's creation. So for those of you like big theological words, Jesus has already claimed two attributes of God. To forgive sins, and he's Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, this guy's walking a fine line here. And he's like, you can't fast now. The fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies is here right now. And it's me. It's Jesus. It's here now. It's a time of great joy. It's a celebration. Not fasting. Not fasting. That time would come, but not right now. And last one here. So what? So what? Number five, so what? Jesus comes along and he, re- he turns the religious system upside down by telling the truth. And you have two options. You can either choose today or maybe you already have to be offended. So like, I did not sign up for that. I did not sign up to be that kind of Jesus follower, that part of that movement. Or you can say, I give up, I surrender, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, with my whole life. And so th- those religious leaders, those Pharisees, they fit into the 97% of people who hear. They heard, and they're offended. And so they leave, they actually start plotting. And you can fit into that camp too. This church thing, this Jesus, not for me. Or you can say, I'm going to give my life to him full 100%. But don't be indifferent. Don't be Canadian. Don't just straddle the line. Ah. Either reject them or give them your whole life. But don't stay in the middle. Don't be spinning your tires. Every day in my life, and maybe in yours too, I have crucial conversations that I can either steer around and deal with and they can move me forward and they can bring me freedom and then get the ball rolling or I can just be indifferent don't be indifferent is important change ever possible yeah it is and if you're a Christ follower I would say it starts with prayer and this Start reading your Bible. Start praying. And then on top of that, like we've been talking about today, then you'll have the wisdom and the guidance to tell the truth in a safe way so it's interpreted correctly. Are you stuck today? You feel like you're spinning your tires. Maybe it's in your, in your marriage. Maybe it's personally. Maybe personally on a spiritual level, you're like, man, I, I, got, I need to... I'm dealing with this sin. I got the struggle and I can't get over it. Have a crucial conversation with God. Spend time with God even after service today. Make it your priority. Get things right with Him. Have you given Him your life? Have you made Him your life leader? Don't be indifferent. Maybe it's with your in your marriage. Maybe it's on a team. Maybe it's with your classmates. Maybe it's with your family. But step out. Tell the truth.
have that crucial conversation? Are there intalkables in your life that are just stopping you as a family or personally from moving forward? May you leave today, and please pardon the metaphor, but let's be a church where there's no elephants in the room. Kill all the elephants. Let's be the kind of people who are genuine and real and honest and truthful. Let's get rolling. Jesus commands us that if we follow him, if we, if we live the way he's called us to live, we get to be guests of the groom. We get not only an RSVP if you say yes to Jesus, but you get to begin preparations for a long, eternal, forever feast with him. Do you want to be a part of the party or not? Let's pray. God, in my own life, your, your words, God, and your actions through Jesus, I'm definitely a, an old wineskin kind of mind and lifestyle. God, help me to put my faith and my trust in my life completely in you and this movement that you began 2,000 years ago. Help me not to get stuck on forms that are absolutely irrelevant to seeing life transformation. The only thing they are relevant for is they make me feel comfortable. And all they're doing is creating dysfunction and disunity in your kingdom. May we be a part of your movement, what you designed the church to be, and what you died for for each and every one of us personally to set us free so that we could partner with you God, for any of us that are just in bondage, spiritually, we've got stuff we haven't dealt with, we've got forgiveness issues, we just have anger, or there's even intalkables, as we were talking about that today, that we can't be honest, we can't tell the truth in those things. Holy Spirit, prompt us, move us, help us to seek the counsel, the wisdom, help us to turn to you, and may we get... May we just say today, enough is enough. No more elephants in the room. No more untalkables. I want to be focused and purposeful like your son Christ was. May we live that way. May we live that transformational way that you've called us to live. And God, I pray for anyone here who does not know you. Today, may they cross that line. And all it takes is an ask. God, I've fallen short. And I'm in need of my sins to be dealt with. And I know that can only be recognized through your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for him living the life I should have lived and him dying the death I should have died. And I pray, God, that he would just, through his sacrifice and his blood spilt, cover my sins so that I can be in right relationship with you. We pray all these things in your precious name, Heavenly Father. Amen. After, um, after dismissal uh, today, I want to encourage you to stay back if you can. Um, we're going to have an extended time of worship and reflection. and um, We want to keep this place safe and quiet. And uh, yeah, I just want to encourage you guys to do that at the end of the service if you can.
singing but in benediction today may you go this week addressing the untalkables addressing the elephants in the room addressing the things that are holding you back from serious life transformation and may you do it with speaking truth and love and grace and may your life just be transformed upside down go in peace Bye.
Jesus.